We'll hear argument now in number 02403, the Federal Election Commission versus Christine Beaumont. Uh, Mr. Clement. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court's campaign finance cases consistently emphasize the fundamental distinction between contributions and expenditures. Direct transfers of cash to a candidate pose unique risks of the appearance of corruption or the threat of actual corruption, while at the same time imposing less significant interference with First Amendment values. And so this Court's jurisprudence consistently recognizes that there is less rigorous scrutiny on limitations on contributions relative to limitations on expenditures. The Court below lost sight of that fundamental dichotomy. It held that corporations of the type that this Court exempted from the general limitations on corporate expenditures in Massachusetts Citizens for Life were equally exempt from the broad prohibitions on corporate contributions to candidates. That reasoning ignores this Court's decision in Massachusetts Citizens for Life itself, which specifically distinguished between the expenditures and contributions of nonprofit corporations. More fundamentally, the decision below ignores this Court's decision in National Right to Work Committee. There, this Court held that the broad limitations on corporate contributions and the specific limitations on solicitation embedded in that broad prohibition were constitutional against a First Amendment challenge. Mr. Clement, uh, the government does does not challenge the exemption of this uh, not-for-profit corporation from expenditure limitations? That's right, Justice Scalia. The Court below addressed both an expenditure issue and a prohibition issue with respect to contributions. And the government only took up the prohibition on contributions. So that is the only issue before the Court. I think it's important, though, to understand that that is a distinction that the Court below placed uh, insufficient emphasis on, because that is a distinction between contributions and expenditures that underlies the last quarter century of this Court's campaign finance jurisprudence. And in National Right to Work Committee itself, this Court recognized that the broad prohibitions on contributions applied to all corporations, including those like National Right to Work Committee itself, that were without great financial resources. Nonetheless, in the particular context of corporate contributions to candidates, this Court held that it would not second-guess Congress's decision that a broad prophylactic approach was necessary when corruption was the evil feared. Do you think after the decision in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts case, uh, the NRWC uh, would have a right to make independent expenditures? Well, I think it would, Chief Justice Rehnquist, and I think that where I would point to first is your dissent in that case, because in that case, in your dissent, you made the argument that National Right to Work Committee was essentially the same as Massachusetts Citizens for Life. And the majority, in responding to that argument, didn't draw any particular distinction between National Right to Work Committee and Massachusetts Citizens for Life, but rather drew a firm distinction between the level of scrutiny that applies to limitations on contributions and the level of scrutiny that applies to limitations on expenditures. So I would read that decision as saying that the critical distinction is not the differences among the types of corporations with respect to contribution bans, but is the fact that contribution bans are much more readily approved under First Amendment analysis than expenditure bans. And National Right to Work Committee obviously wasn't the last word on that subject. This Court reaffirmed the validity of a broad prophylactic approach to corporate contributions, both in National Conservative Political Action Committee and in Massachusetts Citizens for Life itself. 
particularly in light of Massachusetts Citizens for Life, a ban on corporate contributions by nonprofits does not impose significant burdens on First Amendment interests. In the particular context of this type of corporation, the corporation is free to engage in unlimited spending on elections through the corporate form, and the individual respondents are free to give unlimited contributions to North Carolina Right to Life. In addition, and equally important, the individual members of North Carolina Right to Life are free to give contributions to the candidates of their choice up to the constitutionally valid contribution limits. Accordingly, this case doesn't involve the right to associate together or the right to associate with candidates of someone's individual choosing, but only the right to assemble together collectively to give money to candidates of an organization's collective choosing. And even that rather attenuated First Amendment interest is only affected to the extent that a corporation must direct its contributions through a separate segregated fund with enhanced disclosure and reporting and bookkeeping requirements. Why, why is that an attenuated First Amendment right? Is, isn't that the right that enables the formation of political parties, people forming together in order to collectively give money to particular candidates? Well, certainly in in the first point, parties are subject to a different type of regulation under the campaign finance laws. But secondly — Well, it may well be, but but I I wouldn't shrug off as inconsequential the importance of individuals being able to to band together to support individual candidates. That's the whole basis for our, our party system. And, and, and I don't want to suggest that there's no First Amendment interest on the other side of, of, of the argument in this case. But what I did mean to suggest is that interest is less significant than the interest in individuals banding together to make expenditures that they might otherwise not be able to make. And I think even in the party context, this Court recognized that distinction in the Colorado Republican cases, where it held that limitations on what the, the party can spend to support a candidate are not subject to limitation, but, what the, there, but there are valid limitations on what the party can contribute to a candidate of its choosing. Now, in contrast to the rather minimal First Amendment interest that are interfered with by Section 441B, it plays an important role in safeguarding the integrity of the election process. This Court in in, in National Right to Work Committee already has recognized that corporate contributions pose a risk of the reality and appearance of corruption, and that a broad prophylactic limitation on all corporations, including those without great financial resources, is an appropriate response to that threat. All corporations, regardless of their size, also pose risks of circumvention and of undermining the workability of candidate disclosure requirements. As this Court recognized in Cedric Kushner promotions against King, the whole point of a corporation, its basic purpose and fundamental reason for for existing, is to create legal separateness between the individuals that form and run the corporation and the artificial corporate entity itself. Giving such an artificial entity the right to contribute in its own name, independent of the individuals that underlie the corporation, obviously poses a distinct risk to a campaign finance system that is based largely on individual contribution limits. Section 441B addresses that risk by requiring that those contributions be made through a segregated fund subject to enhanced bookkeeping and disclosure requirements. Those bookkeeping and disclosure requirements, in turn, make the campaign disclosure forms that individual candidates have to file work in a meaningful fashion. 
If those candidate disclosure forms simply revealed that the candidate received money from an artificial entity with either an ambiguous name or what this Court in Citizens Against Rent Control versus Berkeley termed a seductive name that tends to conceal the true identity and true source of the funds, then those campaign finance forms or disclosure forms will not provide meaningful information. If, on the other hand, 441B makes the underlying corporations use a segregated fund that discloses the individual sources of the contributions, then the disclosure forms can work in a meaningful fashion. I think it bears emphasis, as this Court recognized in Massachusetts Citizens for Life, that the distinction between contributions and expenditures applies with full force in the context of nonprofit organizations. A limitation on expenditures can prevent an organization's members who might otherwise not have the resources to reach a certain audience to pool their resources together to reach that audience. There is no comparable function or benefit from the pooling of individual candidate contributions. The individual candidates themselves can perform that pooling function by assembling together candidate contributions of whatever size in order to reach an audience or to engage in political speech. The intermediate pooling function that the nonprofit corporation serves can only benefit by either circumventing the individual contribution requirements or assembling an aggregate contribution of a sufficient size to potentially capture the attention of a candidate for purposes of a quid pro quo. To be sure, the the same provisions of the campaign finance laws allow corporations to assemble funds in, in, in aggregate amounts through a segregated fund, but only with the additional safeguards that are imposed including enhanced disclosure requirements. Congress, in adopting Section 441B, drew an important distinction between corporations and their ability to contribute and individuals. In the expenditure context, the limitations on corporate expenditures stand in stark contrast to the general right of individuals to engage in unlimited independent expenditures. But no one has a right to engage in unlimited unlimited contributions to candidates. Congress addresses the threat of individual contributions through dollar limits. It addresses the distinct risks of corporate contributions through the requirement of a segregated fund, higher limits, and enhanced disclosure requirements. Respondents effectively ask this Court to disregard and second-guess Congress's decision to treat corporations differently from individuals for purposes of candidate contributions. With respect, I think essentially respondents ask this court to treat North Carolina Can you summarize, right. Summarize briefly what the enhanced disclosure requirements are. Certainly, Chief Justice Rehnquist. The, the, the main difference is that in the context of a segregated fund, all, both all incoming contributions to the segregated fund and all disbursements must be disclosed. Talking about PACs. I mean, the PACs generally, they're segregated funds in the particular context of corporations and labor unions. And the so, donor is listed. The donor is listed. There's specific provisions for very small donations where the name only goes to the FEC and it's not publicly disclosed. But, there's a, but really everything that comes in and comes out of the segregated fund is traceable either by the FEC or through the public and disclosure requirements. In the context of the corporation generally, only, only donations that are given over $200 and for the express purpose of, of political activity have to be disclosed. And that does create a significant loophole. In the Mr. McClement, is this, is this Section 441B related or affected in any way by the McCain-Feingold legislation? 
Justice O'Connor, it really isn't, at least as this case comes to this Court. The prohibitions on corporate contributions have been in the law since 1907 and have been left completely unaffected by the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act. It is true that certain limitations on electioneering activity, which is a new term introduced into the law by the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act, do apply to corporations. So in considering challenges to the McCain-Feingold legislation, this Court may have to consider the restrictions on corporations engaged in expenditures and these new electioneering activities. But at least the issue here in this case is unaffected by The the, the issue of corporate contributions is miraculously unaffected Mm -hmm. by the many reforms that are put in place by the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. In the end — What is the limitation of the PAC? How how much can they contribute, say, to a senator? A a, a political action committee or any segregated fund can give $5,000. You're saying that this particular — uh, kind of organization can't contribute directly, but it could set up a what you call a segregated fund, which I was thinking of as a PAC. And so if that segregated fund now wants to make a contribution to Senator Smith for his re-election campaign, is there a limit as to how much they can give? I'd think so. There is indeed, Justice Breyer. It's $5,000. $5,000. And and two points of emphasis just on that question. One is that respondents here don't just have the right to set up a segregated fund, but they've actually already done that. They've already set up a segregated fund. And I know that this Court in Massachusetts Citizens for Life emphasized that there are unique restrictions and burdens on setting up a segregated fund, and I think that's true in the context of expenditures. But I do think it's easy to exaggerate the burdens that are imposed in setting up a segregated fund. Although a segregated fund is like a PAC, There's no requirement that they have separate offices or separate officers. They have to have a distinct leadership, but it can be the same leadership as the corporation itself. And could they have two members? I don't know of any particular limit on the the members. But the point is, all that's really required is segregation of funds and keeping it separate. It's not an onerous requirement. And I think it's no accident that in the four cases that this Court has had that involve the nonprofit corporation, National Right to Work Committee, Massachusetts Citizens for Life, Austin against Michigan Chamber of Commerce, in this case, all four of those nonprofits had already set up segregated funds before the case got to this court. So I don't think, at least in the contribution context, that those are onerous requirements. In Massachusetts Citizens for Life, there was a separate pact? There was. This court in footnote 8 suggested that that wasn't dispositive of its reasoning because other other entities could set be in a position that were similar to Massachusetts Citizens for Life might not be able to afford those burdens. But the Massachusetts court did say for, for that type of for that type of corporation, not a commercial corporation, that was a bur- burdensome and unnecessary because the risk of corruption for that kind of corporation was significantly less than for commercial corporation, and that would apply here as well. If the if the evil is corruption, I'm buying the candidate by my dollars. Then that risk is less for an advocacy organization? Is that is well, — I don't want to suggest that, the, that, that, that it may not be true that the risks are slightly less in the context of a nonprofit advocacy corporation than in the context of something like General Motors. But I think in the particular context of candidate contributions by corporations, this Court has repeatedly decided that it's willing to accept a broad prophylactic approach 
to, and, and to limit all corporate contributions, including contributions by corporations without great financial resources. The Court said as much in National Right to Work Committee. It repeated that again in National Conservative Political Action Committee. But I think most tellingly, it said that in Massachusetts Citizens for Life itself. And in particular, if you look at footnote 13 of the Massachusetts Citizens for Life decision, the Court there specifically said that it understood that Massachusetts Citizens for Life would continue to be subjected to the National Right to Work Committee regime for purposes of its contributions. And it was talking about the fact that it didn't have, that Massachusetts Citizens for Life, for example, didn't have shareholders, but it was quick to, 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 to reinforce that that didn't mean that it didn't have members for purposes of National Right to Work Committee that it could solicit, subject, of course, to the overall limit that it could not give direct contributions to candidates. That was an assumption of the case. You don't, you don't, you don't assert that it was the holding of the case. Well, I don't think it's necessarily the holding of the case, because obviously that case involved expenditures. But I do think that when this Court distinguishes a prior precedent of the Court, that that's not a part of the opinion that a lower Court is free to ignore. I think that part of the opinion is critical to the reasoning of the Court and should be given stare decisis effect. And I don't think there's any reason that's been brought to bear here to revisit this Court's distinction in Massachusetts Citizens for Life between contributions and expenditures, which, after all, is a fundamental building block of this Court's campaign finance jurisprudence. Whenever we distinguish a prior case in one of our opinions, that uh, that distinguishing has stare decisis effect. I would think that in many respects that's the most important part of the opinion. It's not to say that the Court can't subsequently revisit that part of the opinion. I mean, that's certainly what this Court can do, but I think for purposes of a lower Court anyways, if, if, if this Court distinguishes on two cases on the ground that the prior case involved a corporation that had less than $10,000 and a subsequent case comes along where there's $9,999 involved, I would think the lower Court would be well served to heed the distinction that this Court drew. And I think in this particular context, obviously, this Court is free to reconsider its prior precedents, but I don't think there's any reason to do so. The distinction between contributions and expenditures has proved workable, particularly in the context of nonprofit corporations. As I say, this isn't some abstract application of the contribution-expenditure dichotomy that this Court has never considered. Massachusetts Citizens for Life involved a nonprofit corporation, and this Court was at pains pretty much at every step in the Court's reasoning to distinguish between contributions and expenditures. In the end, I think respondents want, ask this Court effectively to disregard Congress's decision to treat corporate contributions distinctly from individual contributions. They effectively ask this Court to treat National, North Carolina Right to Life Incorporated as if it were not incorporated. But there is no reason to disregard either respondents' decision to incorporate or Congress's decision to subject all corporations to the same regime, segregated funds, distinct disclosure requirements, and higher limits, in fact, on their contributions. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Clement. Uh, Mr. Bopp, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, expressive associations play a vital role in our democratic republic. Because they attract financial support, due to their political ideas, not their prowess in the economic marketplace, their participation in our political process poses no threat of corruption as long as they do not serve as a conduit for business corporation contributions. I don't, I don't understand that. Uh, if, if, if I bribe uh, somebody, uh, a, a senator, uh, out of um, — out of uh, political motivation because I'm an environmentalist or whatever, 
That's not corruption. It's only it's it's only if I have some uh, economic motive that it's corruption. Well, that's classic quid pro quo corruption, which is dealt with by contribution limits. Now, two thousand. I mean, I, I it, it may well be, but I don't see that the distinction between whether it's an economic actor or a political actor has anything to do with whether there's corruption or not. Well, there has been some controversy on this court on on whether or not. Uh, uh, the, the decisions of this court and mass citizens and on Austin were in accordance with the Constitution. But in both cases, the court distinguished uh, between uh, the types of corruption that are entailed by the corporate form, which is the potential for unfair employment of wealth for political purposes. This applies to economic corporations, that, that is, those that uh, are not as uh, mass citizens or North Carolina right to life, formed to advance political ideas. Well, but you, you can have an immense corporation formed to advance political ideas. Uh, I, I don't know. This one happens to be a small one. But yes. And, uh, you attract and, an, uh, enough people, you can have an immense organization. What, what, what's the organization for American Association of Retired Persons? I mean, that's an immense organization with, with a large amount of available money. That's right, and the size of the organization is not the issue. The issue in this court's jurisprudence is whether is the nature of the organization itself, and not the corporate form per se. If the well, nature would, of Mr. Bopp, would you say that the AARP, which is referred to by Justice Scalia, the National Right to Work Committee, which was involved in that opinion, and Massachusetts Citizens for Life, are all uh, in the same boat? I don't believe so, Your Honor. I think uh, we Why do not. Well, the, uh, the court in Mass Citizens established some criteria to determine whether or not an organization, a corporation, benefited uh, from the MCFL exemption. Uh, uh, and those include uh, whether or not there are uh, incentives to uh, disassociate, uh, lack of incentives to disassociate, uh, by, for instance, uh, having insurance plans and other benefits of membership that are economically uh, related. Secondly, uh, you would look to the amount of corporate uh, business corporation contributions or business activities. If those are too much or those are not uh, insignificant in, in comparison with the total sums raised, Bob, then again, I, they would I, not qualify. I thought that Massachusetts Citizens for Life went further. It said having a policy against corporate, accepting corporate co contributions, which is one difference between your organization and Massachusetts Citizens for Life. They said they would take no money from corporations. You accept money from corporations. You get very little from business corporations, but you don't have a policy of turning them away. That's correct, Your Honor. And the uh all the circuits that have considered this, which have been four of the circuits, all agree that the features explained and, and characterizing mass citizens in, in the Supreme Court's decision uh, were not constitutional requirements, but descriptions of the organization before it. And all of them have agreed that, uh, that not-for-profit ideological corporations can still qualify for the masses for the Massachusetts citizens' exemption. Well, would you call AARP an ideological organization? 
I think they have a mixture of uh, political and non-political uh, purposes and are therefore more like uh, Austin, uh, the, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce in Austin, that had a mixture of political and non-political purposes and therefore did not qualify for the MCFL exemption. And uh, to complete my answer. Well, that the members also get benefits, uh, and, yes. and that criterion would uh, would, would make it different from There were also incentives uh, that were economic in nature that would cause people uh, to be reluctant to disassociate with Michigan uh, Chamber of Commerce uh, if, it, if it proved to be uh, that they disagreed with their political ideas or the advancement of their political ideas. Uh, and uh, the four circuits that have considered the question of the amount of business uh, corporation contributions have all said that as long as they are insignificant in comparison with the total revenue of the organization, they still uh, they do not serve as a conduit for business corporation contributions and still qualify for the exemption. But they could serve as a conduit for a very large donor, a very wealthy person who wants to avoid the personal limitations on how much that individual could give. Well, it is true that there are no contribution limits to uh, not-for-profit corporations. Uh, however, uh, the intent of a donor to circumvent those limits would be uh, contributing to a not-for-profit would be a highly inefficient and ineffective way of doing so. Uh, because the political activities of uh, not-for-profit corporations, both because of the major purpose test that would cause an organization to become a PAC if political activity became their major purpose, and the Internal Revenue uh, Service's uh, limitations on the activities of 501c4 organizations, which is what uh, the regulations require you to be qualified as in, in order to qualify for the MCFL exemption, all, uh, all mean that a very small percentage of any contribution to a not-profit corporation could ever be used for political uh, activity. Uh, furthermore, contributing to a not-for-profit versus a PAC and a, uh, or a political party uh, is also a, an unfavorable prospect uh, for a donor. I mean, after all, the, uh, a not-for-profit uh, under the 441A contribution limits uh, is limited to a $2,000 contribution where a PAC can give 5000 and political parties can give uh, much more. Uh, furthermore, uh, all of the money that PACs or political parties uh, receive in their hard money accounts uh, can be used for political activity, whereas I've mentioned for not-for-profits, uh, it's a really a very small percentage uh, in order to continue to qualify uh, under the MCFL exemption and continue uh, to not be deemed a PAC for, uh, for the purposes of the um, Federal Election Campaign Act. Now, the disclosure uh, interest that there, that there is for uh, contributions can be readily and in a narrowly tailored way uh, dealt with by simply requiring that any contribution to a not-for-profit that is to be uh, used for or is intended to be used for contributions to candidates must be reported and is, there, and is thereby subject to the aggregate contribution limits. This is a much more narrowly tailored way to deal with disclosure and the aggregate contribution limits than prohibiting the organization completely from making any contribution. You know what you do then, this is what I understand you to be saying. What the, 
one of their justifications that has been advanced for this restriction on contributions, I've interpreted as the following. We have five people. These five people each write a check to candidate Smith for $2,000. They get annoyed. They think they should be able to give $4,000, which the law forbids. So they form a committee, a nonprofit corporation called the $4,000 for Smith Corporation. And now each of them writes another check for $2,000, gives it to the corporation, and the corporation gives it to Smith. And I think the government says, well, Congress wanted to stop that. It's not actually going to limit them to zero. They're going to be limited to $5,000 as a group, provided they jump through certain hoops. Well, if they're now, what's, 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 what's wrong with that argument? Well, if they're, if they're a pack, then they can give 5000 out of the, out of the 10000 that you posit. If they're a not-for-profit corporation, the most they can give — You know, but you see what I'm saying? I'm saying Congress doesn't want to have groups called the $4,000 for Smith Group, even if they call themselves something different. Uh, They want to limit each of those members to $2,000. And that's what they do. Though, for a variety of other reasons, not directly relevant to my question, they've allowed those people to get together jump through various hoops called the PAC hoops and give up to $5,000 extra. Though if Congress wanted to, they might say none. Yes. All right. Well, the, that's, their, that's basically the argument. I want to get a straight, you know, direct reply to it. Well, the, uh, the desire of subjecting the aggregate contribution limit uh, or a uh, contribution in excess of 2,000, one direct and one through another source, is dealt with two ways and can be. One is if the contribution made to this group that you posit is earmarked, then that contribution is considered to be a contribution not just to the group but also to the candidate, him or herself. So that earmarked contribution is subject to the $2,000 limit, and the contribution used for that would be in violation of the Act currently. All right. So now, is that good? That is current law. And and so that prospect is prohibited, uh, and appropriately so. Secondly, uh, as the uh, Federal Election Campaign Act previously required, that anyone contributing to an organization, not a PAC, that contributes money for an independent expenditure, that that contribution must be reported by the group that does the independent expenditure. Congress could require the same thing here. They could require money given more generally, not earmarked, but more generally for candidates uh, to be reported by the the group and thereby subject to the aggregate contribution limits. Mr. Bott, isn't it also the case that the the corporation that uh, Justice Breyer posits would not qualify as, as a 501 exempt organization? if the only thing it's using its money for is to make contributions to political candidates. So that would also be true. They, I mean, it, 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 has to be, it has to be a relatively insignificant part of its overall activity. Yes. Uh, the, the Internal Revenue Service would uh, treat the organization that he described as a political organization. So these five people would have to, have to get together with maybe 100,000 other people so that their, their little portion is so watered down that it's not a significant part of the corporation's uh, business. That's exactly — I didn't think there was a numerical limit. 
And my uh, question, which uh, tried to uh, eliminate extraneous points, I think you understood perfectly well there. I mean a 503C corporation, but et cetera. But I want to go back to your answer, because the, the, I'm trying to un- get clear about this. And uh, the, what you're saying is that Congress could take my group with whatever else they have to do to qualify them. They could take my group, and you're saying Congress could just say, very well, we will limit the corporation so that it can only give money from these five people insofar as they haven't met their $2,000 individual limit. That would be an effect of what I said, yes. And, 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 and moreover, it could require reporting so we know who they are. Yes. All right. Now, is that a less restrictive alternative than what Congress has actually done, which is to say uh, per, per, proceed through a segregated fund? Yes, much because, less restrictive. Because? Well, because this Court held in Mass Citizens and Austin that uh, the PAC requirements, both administrative, uh, including record-keeping, uh, appointment of a treasurer, uh, filing regular reports, et cetera, uh, and the limits that are imposed upon PACs, as a $5,000 contribution limit to PACs, et cetera, all uh, impose an, a constitutionally bur- a burden, a burden on constitutionally uh, exercised rights uh, th- that, did not ju- that uh, did not pass constitutional muster. So, so while it, it is true that you can do it under a PAC, that imposes an unconstitutional burden on the First Amendment a- activities. And that, of course, all goes back to, uh, you know, is there a justification for this? In other words, we have a prohibited pers- well, well, source just, just rule. before you go on, I, I don't see why your proposal doesn't have all of the same ad- ad- administrative inconveniences. Well, there's a one-page report. Uh, there are organizations that can do independent expenditures that are not PACs. There's a one-page one report to file, and that, and that uh, report would say how much is being spent on the independent expenditure and how much has been donated to the organization for the purpose of that independent expenditure. Similarly, uh, a report like that could be filed for contributions so that we could capture those uh, people who are trying to circumvent the limits to, to make undisclosed or excessive contributions, uh, we would capture them because then the only choice left to the donor would be a completely undifferentiated, un, um, earmarked contribution that is going to be used by the organization 95, 98 uh, percent for other purposes, that for lobbying, for education, for uh, uh, other charitable activities. Mr. Bob, uh, the court basically decided this issue in National Right to Work Committee case, didn't it? You just want us to distinguish your type of nonprofit corporation. Well, we are asking you to distinguish the Massachusetts I Citizens think for that's Life. It's very hard to do. I, I mean, we dealt with this precise issue in that case. But there was no issue in that case about uh, whether or not the organization itself. Uh, should not be viewed as a prohibited source of, of making independent expenditures or making contributions in that case. The organization opted for the corporate form yes. knowing about these limitations. Yes, but this court has, but was clear in Mass Citizens that it's not the corporate form per se 
but the potential for unfair deployment of wealth for political purposes and held that these types of organizations pose no threat, no threat whatsoever. It it couldn't have been a holding in the the Massachusetts case because there you were talking about independent expenditures rather than contributions. Well, but, the, sure, but certainly the Massachusetts case doesn't control the outcome here. Well, we, we believe that, it, that the holding of the court in Mass Citizens, uh, that this organization serves no potential for corruption of the democratic process, was essential for the court to hold that uh, no independent, uh, that independent expenditures would be allowed. Because after Mr. all. Mr. Bob, at least three times in the text, of the Court's opinion in Massachusetts Citizens for Life at least three times, it distinguishes direct contributions to candidates from expenditures. And each time it explains why it reached the result it, it, it did, it makes that distinction. Yeah. And I think that, 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 that that's so central to Massachusetts Citizens for Life. So if, if — we just had this opinion shorn of all the — however, remember that this is not a contribution to a candidate, and then citing back to the, um, the earlier decision that Justice O'Connor mentioned, the National Right to Work Committee, to distinguish it from this case. But it just seems so all over Massachusetts Citizens for Life that it is drawing this bright line between contributions to candidates and independent expenditure. But but in uh, right to work, it wasn't a prohibition on contributions. It was a a limit on the amount (coughs) of contributions. And we agree that limits on amount. I'm talking about Massachusetts Citizen for Life and the line that Justice Brennan drew in the Massachusetts Citizens for Life between contributions to candidates. Every time he talks about the holding in this case, he said, remember, this is not contributions to candidates. Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. That's what you said. But the, the case did not involve neither uh, mass citizens nor right to work involved a limit on the amount of contributions. That well, this, is this, like a $2,000 limit. We have not challenged that. Mr. Bott, do you challenge the distinction for First Amendment purposes between restricting contributions and restricting expenditures? Only as to a prohibition on them. Uh, that is, this Court in uh, Buckley and reaffirmed in Shrink uh, said that there were both speech and association aspects of making a contribution. Uh, that is, uh, it's a, uh, as far as speech is concerned, that is a general expression of support that is found in the undifferentiated act of contributing. Well, here, they are prohibited from contributing. They cannot, uh, these organizations cannot give one cent. Therefore, so so you're you're saying there is a distinction for for valid First Amendment purposes between the the contribution limit and the the expenditure limit, uh, but that distinction is not strong enough to forbid an entire prohibition. That's correct, because both the speech aspects and association aspects of contributing that are that remain after limits on the amounts are imposed. 
because the speech aspect is a general expression of support, and the association aspect is to serve to affiliate a person with the candidate. You have your name now through the the method of the contribution affiliated with the candidate. When you have a zero contribution limit, then there is no speech and no association that is allowed uh, uh, through the act of contributing. Therefore, I I don't think any of our cases have sliced the onion quite that fine uh, to get into these nuances that uh, there's a difference between prohibiting a contribution and limiting it. I think our distinctions have been primarily that contributions may be quite substantially regulated, independent expenditures cannot be. Well, that is, that is generally a correct characterization of your jurisprudence, but you have to examine why. Why is it that contributions are subject to a lower level of scrutiny? And the, the why is, is that the speech and association aspects of giving a smaller contribution remain. But if you can't give any contribution, then both that speech and association aspect. When you say can't give any, you are overlooking or saying the pack doesn't count. Yes. It isn't an absolute no contribution. It is, if you do it, you have to do it through this arm that you create, this segregated fund, this 501, the other 501c4 organization. You can, you can do it, but you have to do it in a rather cumbersome way. So it isn't. Yeah. You cannot make any contributions. Well, not only is it cumbersome, uh, but it's constitutionally, uh, it's an unconstitutional burden. This court has held in Mass Citizens and in Austin to require First Amendment political activity to be done through a PAC. So that First Amendment activity in, in the Massachusetts case itself, as I just said, and I don't want to repeat that, except that Justice Brennan did repeat it at least three times. Yes, and I'm aware of that, but I'm just asking this court to, to consider not 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 to uh, apply what is dicta uh, in mass citizens, since it did not involve contributions, uh, to, to just apply that, but to consider the rationale. And uh, in, in North in uh, in national right to work, it, the court was considering not a prohibition on soliciting contributions from members to its PAC. Uh, it was uh, considering a limit on what is considered to be a member. So once again, that case involved contribution limits, not prohibition. Mr. Bob, that, that, that First Amendment right that you talk about as the associational interest, the, the ability to give at least a dollar will, will identify you with the, the, uh, with the candidate. Is that really a First Amendment interest that applies to the association or does it apply to the members of the association? And as Mr. Clement pointed out, the individual members of the association remain free to give a dollar, indeed up to $2,000 to the particular candidate. All you're really talking about here is, is, is not the ability of individuals to identify themselves with a candidate, but the ability of individuals by pooling their resources to help a candidate significantly. It seems to me that that's the only interest uh, at at issue here. Well, well, there's valid reasons, uh, unlike the representation or the argument of the government, for people to want to pool their resources in an association. That those valid reasons are, uh, in fact, why people already contribute to PACs and the political parties. Among those reasons is not 
in order to identify myself with that candidate. Well, but the — to, to do that, all you have to do is reach in your pocket and give them a dollar. Th that is true. But uh, many people choose to pool their resources because they want uh, the group, which has a separate existence and has a political purpose, un unlike them as an individual, you know, the, the, they are not as identified with a particular point of view or political idea like a group w would be, like, like NARAL uh, would be. And so if — so they choose, then, to pool their resources uh, with the group uh, in order to make the much more powerful statement uh, about the political ideas that they are attempting to support, and they want candidates to be associated with. Uh, now, in addition, the fact that uh, the group can aggregate the small contributions and then make a large contribution to a particular candidate enhances the, uh, uh, the contribution that the individual would otherwise may be made because it is being done uh, by the group and in an aggregate. Uh, so there are justifiable reasons why people want to associate. And, and then further, the association. It seems to me that your argument really would go just the same way to an amount limitation as to a total prohibition. No, because amount limitations uh, do not. Uh, well, everybody could just contribute $10. Wouldn't that, would that be okay with you? You mean the, the amount that. I'd say the amount limitation was very low. As I understand it, you're trying to draw a categorical distinction between total prohibition and amount limitation. Yes. And I don't know, I don't see that your argument really is directed to that. Well, it goes to the source of the, of the rights, the First Amendment rights that are implicated by, a, by an amount uh, limitation as opposed to a prohibition. But it seems to me an amount limitation that's very, very low would have the same vice under your argument as a total prohibition. Well, potentially, but uh, that would be a case to be decided at, at that point. Uh, and now the, this Court has upheld the $5,000 limit, for instance, to political action committees. Uh, and, uh, but you would have to consider if it got too low. I mean, there's certainly a potential for contributions that are too low, as uh, Justices uh, Breyer and, and Ginsburg explained in Shrink, there is certainly a potential, if they're too low, to be unconstitutional. But here we're not talking about uh, and have not challenged the, the $2,000 limit. We accept that. Uh, we just don't accept the proposition that because the organization poses no threat of corruption to the political process, that they should be uh, completely prohibited uh, from making uh, a contribution. Uh, so, the, so we view this then as a source limitation, not as an amount limitation. And as a result, the... Uh, uh, the uh, contribution jurisprudence of this court that have accepted greater regulation of contributions is not uh, applicable. If there are no other questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bob. Mr. Clement, you have 11 minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Let me begin with the distinction that respondents rely on between limits on contributions and prohibitions on contributions. <laughs> Even if there is something to that distinction, and I rather doubt there is for some of the reasons uh, unearthed by Justice Stevens' colloquy with, with counsel for respondent, even if that were a valid distinction, this case does not involve an absolute prohibition. 
This Court, both in Massachusetts Citizens for Life and Austin, and in fact much earlier in Pipefitters, made clear that the limitations on corporate and labor union contributions in Section 441B are not a, quote, absolute prohibition, but rather just a limitation on contributions. The availability of the segregated funds to make the contributions is another way of making this a limitation, a particular limitation designed for the unique risks of artificial entities like corporations and labor unions. And I think any effort to distinguish the discussion in Massachusetts Citizens for Life and its distinctions between contributions and expenditures on the grounds that a prohibition might be different just doesn't work because both Massachusetts Citizens for Life and National Right to Work Committee involve this very provision, Section 441B, So whatever there might be in the case of an absolute prohibition on somebody's right to make contributions, 441B either isn't that or isn't that in a a constitutionally relevant way after this Court's decisions in Massachusetts Citizens for Life and National Right to Work Committee. Some discussion was had about fine distinctions that potentially could be drawn between the American Association of Retired Persons, National Right to Work Committee, Massachusetts Citizens for Life, and North Carolina Citizens uh, Right to Life. The point of Section 441B in the contribution context is that Congress has not found a need to draw those kind of fine distinctions. MCFL itself, of course, drew some of those distinctions in the contribution context, in the expenditure context, rather, but drew a distinction between contributions in light of the inherently greater risk of corruption from contributions. Another suggestion was made that perhaps there is a seemingly less restrictive alternative. As with independent expenditures made by nonprofit associations, perhaps contributions that are made to the association with the purpose of them being used for contributions to candidates could be disclosed. Have we actually held, Mr. Clement, that in regulating contributions, uh, the government must find the least restrictive means? No, and to the contrary, this Court has not held that. It did not apply a least restrictive alternative analysis in National Right to Work Committee. In the California Medical Association case, the plurality of the Court, in fact, affirmatively held that the least restrictive alternative was not required in the context of contributions. So I don't think there is that requirement. But I, I want to address the, the supposed less restrictive alternative precisely because I believe that less restrictive alternative is illusory. Because the suggestion is that, that individuals could say, could disclose when they give a contribution to a nonprofit organization for the purpose of a contribution. Well, if that's going to have the effect of avoiding the circumvention rationale, I wonder whether people are really going to volunteer the information that the contribution to the nonprofit is for that purpose. And additionally, even if that is a permissible way and would be enforceable in the real political world, that really doesn't give you much of a different result than what Congress has specifically provided for with the segregated fund. And indeed, the segregated fund actually is responsive to the kind of First Amendment associational interests that underlie this Court's concerns in Buckley and even going back to NAACP against Button. The concern is that disclosure requirements imposed on organizations could be a backhanded way to get at membership lists. The segregated fund prevents that by keeping the membership lists and the organization itself separate from the political activity of the organization. Indeed, if Congress hadn't provided for segregated funds as a requirement for all corporations, but simply made that available, I would think that many nonprofit corporations would avail themselves of that option precisely to avoid the interference with associational interests, as in cases like NAACP against Button. The last point I'd like to talk about is simply this idea 
that, again, underlies much of respondents' arguments, that because there's no threat from expenditures to these types of corporations, there is therefore no threat to these type of corporations engaging in corporate contributions. If that analysis were applied across the board, it would undermine the entirety of this Court's campaign finance jurisprudence, which is based on the fundamental recognition that contributions involve greater risks than expenditures, and and expenditures, therefore, are largely unregulated because they are presumably do not pose as great of risk as contributions. There are no further questions. I'd like the Court below reversed. Thank you, Mr. Clement. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.